Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. If you have a Bible, could you please go to Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14. We are going to get there momentarily in our sermon series through the book of Mark. That's where we are at the moment. I don't know how you're doing at the moment. Just to let you know where myself and our family are up to, it's kind of end of term in the Crane household. We are rolling down to the end of term, end of the academic year as it stands. Um, our, both our boys finished school on Tuesday, and for us, it's a bit of an end of an era because our youngest son, Asher, is in year six. So on Tuesday, we finished nine years worth of primary school in our family. So there's a big kind of emotional thing going on at the moment. He's had his final disco last week. They did their production of Matilda that he was in. We've done that. They've done trips to London. He's got his leavers party on Monday. They've got the church service on Tuesday. And we're done. And on top of, that's on top of everything else going on in life. And so we are quite tired, uh, emotionally, physically. It all feels a bit overwhelming. I don't know if you have a sense of that, any other parents out there, end of term kind of feeling. That's where we are. And what that means is if you're feeling just like there's a lot on and you're worn out and stuff, it means you are weak and vulnerable, it means that actually your patience is less, your reserves are less, and which means you are prone to temptation to more, and you're more likely to give into it, which is just something to be aware of. And what we're going to look at today is that happening to some of our disciples that we've been following through this story. Um, so we are in Mark chapter 14. Uh, we are nearing the end of the gospel that we've been going through. We are nearing the end of the life of Jesus. Uh, the, the Passover festival uh, has been drawing near, a huge national festival. And within that, the religious leaders are planning to kill Jesus. Mark stated that. And they've got one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest associates, his friends, has agreed to betray him. Then we have... In that story, we have this woman breaks into a gathering that Jesus was at, breaks a very expensive bottle of perfume and anoints the body of Jesus. And Jesus says, that's in preparation for my burial. He knows what's coming to him. And then we have the Last Supper that Jesus spends the Passover meal with his disciples. And he shares the bread which he breaks. He says, this is my body and the wine. This is thy blood of the new covenant do this in remembrance of me. And so that's happened on either side of that. We've got the, the prediction of Judas is going to betray me. And then Jesus predicts to the disciples, you're all going to leave me. You're going to flee me. So he can see what's coming in the future. As he heads towards the cross, he's going to be betrayed by one of his own. He's going to be abandoned by all his disciples. And then one of them, Peter kind of the leader of the disciples, says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then Jesus says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me, deny you even know me three times, three times. And Peter's like, no, that's never going to happen. And if you're familiar with the story at all, you know darn well, that's what happens. And so let's pick up the story. It's going to appear on the screen behind. I will read it to you. It says this. Here we go. Mark 14, starting at verses 32. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here 
and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. All right, big idea today, big idea. um, Despite the failure of those around him, Jesus faithfully fulfilled the will of the Father. Despite the failure of those around him, Jesus faithfully fulfilled the will of the Father. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two broad sections here. We're going to look at Jesus um, praying and then Jesus betrayed. First one, Jesus praying. So what we've got here is a section which is a close-up of the Lord Uh, Jesus, as he prays, and there's no other insight in Mark's to this. This is Mark's moment. He's mentioned that Jesus prays, goes away and prays, but here we have a bit of a close-up, a focus to that. And the first thing we see about Jesus' prayer is he prays in response to difficulties. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane uh, was at the foot of the Mount of Olives, which has been mentioned uh, multiple times. And the name Gethsemane is a Hebrew word. It comes from the word for olive press. It was a place, olive press, sorry. It was a place of crushing and breaking down. They crushed the olives to get out the juice so they could make the oil and the other bits and pieces. So that's what this place was, a place of crushing and refining. And we have Jesus there. So it's a significant place. Place They went there often, according to John 18, Jesus as his disciples. And in that place, Jesus is praying. Now think about this. Jesus has had the Last Supper. So it's late at night. And he knows what's coming because he's made the predictions. He said, well, there's one of you who's going to betray me. We know who that is. And he said, the rest of you are going to leave me. And so what Jesus is facing is the kind of the fulfillment of his mission and all that it kind of entails. And his response is prayer. 
with faced with something huge, overwhelming, looming, intimidating, something that is bearing down on him, something there is an inevitability to what is going to outwork in his life, the response of Jesus is prayer. He finds his strength, he finds his hope, he finds his comfort in his relationship with his Father in heaven. He's not looking to his kind of his own intelligence, his own resources, how do I work this out? He's not pacing up and down, fretting. He has gone to his Father in heaven to pray. It says in Psalm 62, verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And in response to a time of crisis that Jesus is facing, and he's fully aware of, and he knows it's coming, his response is to one of prayer. And it begs the question for us, how do we respond in times of difficulty? Where do we go when the chips are down and things are tough? Where do we go when the stuff seems overwhelming and too much for us? Second thing, Jesus prays in community. He knows this is happening. He knows this is coming. He knows he wants to pray. So what does he do? He grabs his closest buddies, Peter, James, and John. And we know they're his closest buddies because they're, they're with him at significant moments. We've seen this in the gospel. We've seen it um, at the Mount of Transfiguration when he went up the mountain. In Mark, he took three with him. Who did he take? Peter, James, and John. When he went to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead and perform that miracle, a resurrection miracle, who was with him? Peter, James, and John. And so these guys are the closest. They're his inner circle. They're the ones. They're the ones who came to him and said, tell us about what you said about the temple, about all the stones being pulled down at the beginning of chapter 13. They were the ones. They're the ones who've been intimate with him. They're the ones who've been close with him. They're the ones he's taught and been with him. And in a time of crisis, in a time of pain, Jesus turns to prayer. And despite being both fully man and fully God, God the Son come to earth in human form, he says, I need my people around me. I need my community. I need those close to me. And so he takes his friends, Peter, James, and John, and he comes together and he says, he needs you to pray with him. And as believers, that's vital for us to take on board. If Jesus, God the Son, in a time of crisis says, I need people with me, and I want you to pray with me, how much more would we need that when we face difficulty How much more do we need brothers and sisters in the church? The worst thing we can do as believers is when the crisis comes, in whatever form that is, is we run away from the people of God. It is the single worst thing you can do, and I know the devil loves it because it isolates you, which makes you easy pickings for him. But Jesus himself says, I want community. I want people around me to pray. And the third thing we see there, Jesus prays even though it's hard. Even though it's hard, he perseveres in prayer. We see Jesus himself praying, and you find this language in this text, which is graphic, and if you really kind of push into it, is really deep and difficult to read. Because it says, Jesus, it says he was greatly distressed and troubled. It says he was very sorrowful, even to death, which means he was overwhelmed with grief, the awareness of the ordeal that he was facing was just crushing to him like in a press 
where they crushed the olives, even where he was, speaks prophetically. And in that situation, when he's in that ordeal, he is in prayer in that moment, even though it's difficult. Jesus had spoken several times in the gospel we've seen about he knows what's coming. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, he made these predictions. There's all these allusions in the last chapter we've seen. He knows what's coming. He knows that his life is going to be poured out as a ransom for many. He knows his death is coming. But as he looks into it, as he faces it, as he is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah, where it says, Isaiah 53, where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus is in that moment he is living that out and he is in prayer when he's doing it and he is finding it overwhelming and hard but he is still persevering and then he prays father if all things are possible remove this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will and Mark uses two words he uses the Aramaic word Abba but then he translates it for his Gentile readers he's got father and the Abba, the Aramaic word is a term of intimacy and affection our nearest English translation would be dear father so it's a sense of recognizing who he is, but also the closeness. And then in the Greek word pater there is also father. So he's talking to his father in heaven. So there's an intimacy and a closeness there. It's not a language rabbis at the time would have used for God. He was far too remote. Jesus came and brought a unique revelation there as the son. And he says, this cup, which represents the judgment and the wrath of God, is coming. He says, I don't, I don't want to face it. So we see Jesus' humanness here. This reality of actually what's coming is horrific. I don't want to face it, but yet we also see great trust in his Father. He said, yet, but not what I will, what you will. Total submission, total trust in the will of his Father, even though he knows it is overwhelming and difficult. And he is facing their human temptation. Jesus suffered just as we do. He faced all the temptation we do, only he faced it worse. And the reason he faced it worse is he never gave in. We all face temptation in all sorts of different ways. The problem is we always tend to give in. And so it never reaches its kind of conclusion. Jesus faced the full force of temptation and never, ever gave in, which meant it just increased, increased, increased. And he resisted and resisted. And that's why he's in this place of anguish. In other gospels, it talks about the physical manifestation with the drops of blood because of the tension and the stress he was going through. Yet in that difficult time, he finds himself in prayer to God the Father. That's where he finds his strength and ultimately to a place of submission and obedience. Yet not what I will but what you will. But it wasn't just um, hard for Jesus. It was also hard for the disciples, but in a totally different way. So the disciples were there. They were with him. They were told to pray. Peter, James, and John were told to come with him, particularly to pray. And what does Jesus find them doing? Sleeping. How many times? Three times. What, what has Jesus predicted already? Something's going to happen three times. Jesus, Peter's going to deny, and, he's, and again, he's fallen asleep three times. So the disciples found it hard because it was late, they'd eaten, and Jesus said, I need you to pray with me, I'm going through this difficult time, and they didn't. And if we go back to chapter 13, Jesus' long kind of sermon on what would happen with the temple and glimpses to the future, what's the one thing he kept telling them to do? Stay awake, and they can't. They can't, they fail time and time again. Even in the Lord's Prayer, it says pray that we're not 
falling into temptation and they have just failed, failing a time again and again. And Peter, uh, Jesus comes back to them. And do you realize what he calls Peter? He doesn't call him Peter, does he? He calls him Simon. Why is he calling him Simon? Well, Simon is the old way. Peter, on his revelation, Jesus gave the new name. You're Peter on my rock. On this rock, I'll build my church. You're the one. And now he's acting. You're, you're a Simon now. You're failing. You're falling asleep. That's who you're, that's who you're being. Mark calls him Peter because that's what he's known as. But actually, when Jesus speaks, he calls him Simon. You're falling into your old ways. You're falling into temptation. You're giving into the things of the flesh. And Jesus found them asleep three times. Can you imagine what that would have been like? He's facing this crisis. He is overwhelmed. Greece, he's saying, pray with me. And I imagine he was praying. And then there's that moment where he opens his eyes. I haven't heard you guys pray for a while. And they're just flat out curled up on the grass or, or somewhere. And it's like, he wakes them up. He says, right, you need to pray with me. And he does it again. And he comes, he looks back and says, no, you've fallen asleep again. And you think, the third time he comes back, can you imagine? Oh, my goodness, I'm going through this. You're my guys, and you're not even praying for me. And then at the end, we find of that section, Jesus has his cry of exasperation. It is enough. Basically, what's the use? I want you to pray you're not What's the use? Time's up. He says, look, the betrayer comes. It's all happening. And the disciples have failed Jesus in that moment. And Jesus is now ready to face what comes next because he's had his time with his father. And for Jesus, interestingly, just as a a side note, a couple of things happened there in prayer. One, Jesus' prayer wasn't answered. Have you ever had answered prayer? So is Jesus. He said, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours. The second thing, just to note there, when Jesus is in the most difficult, dire part of his life, he is right where God wants him to be. Just because things are going hard doesn't mean you're not where God wants you to be. Sometimes we can give in to the Western mindset that everything's got to be comfortable and easy and good. And then you're hashtag blessed. Jesus was in the worst point of his life, yet he was right where God wants him to be to fulfill his purposes and to be the savior of the world. So they don't necessarily have to be things that are opposed to each other. Second thing, Jesus was arrested. Jesus is arrested. Okay, so we have this intimate moment with Peter, James, and John till we now move to a crowd armed that have come to find him and to arrest him. Uh, we find, if you, as we're going through it, look for the word seize. It comes up four times in the passage. There is a binding of Jesus, that's what's happening here. That's what's working out. The plan to arrest and kill Jesus is being worked out uh, before our eyes. And it begins with an intimate betrayal. It says Judas came. There's only two people mentioned in this passage, Jesus and Judas. And Judas comes and it says, and he identifies him. Who is Judas? He is one of the 12. So he is one of the ones who've been with Jesus since the beginning. He's the one who's seen everything and heard everything he's been a witness to all the ministry of Jesus and he is the one who is leading the men who are coming to arrest him he is the one who knew where Jesus was he's the one who's agreed to betray Jesus and he comes with this armed group uh, from the chief priests scribes and elders they're the three groups that made up the Sanhedrin the Jewish ruling council and so this is the religious authority religious political kind of authority of the nation of Israel are coming for Jesus 
who is the God of Israel. The ironies abound in this. He's the one, and he predicted this would happen with the temple and all the conflict that happened there, but they are coming to find him. They are coming to get him. And then what happens? How does Judas identify Jesus? And we have to remember, this is a time where there was no photographs, no social media. There were just people, and if you didn't see someone or know someone, you wouldn't know who they were. And so Judas has to identify who Jesus is because it's dark, it's late, there's a lot of people around. There's Jesus amongst his people and there's all the crowd coming. He needs to identify who's the one. And Judas, who's been with Jesus for years, will know who Jesus is. He will recognize him, recognizes his voice, he recognizes his face. Many others wouldn't. They'd have heard of Jesus, but they might not have seen him. There'd be no photos, no films, no YouTube videos of him. So he has to come and identify him. And what does it say he does? It says he goes up to him. He gave him an intimate gesture, a kiss, gesture of love and closeness. This is the one. Probably a hug in there so it was clearly defined. This is the guy and he calls him rabbi. And the literal translation of rabbi is great one. So he goes up to Jesus. And the irony of that is that's how we approach God, with intimacy and love and recognizing who he is, the great one. And so Judas comes there, but he's doing it in a way to betray him, a form of mockery, who he is. And so he identifies who Jesus is. And so Judas is a willful player in this. Sometimes he's portrayed as a tragic victim of fate, circumstances, blah, blah, blah. No, he willfully did this heinous, evil act and betrayed the Son of Man into the hands of sinners. And he knew what he was doing, and he did it. And then we find in response to that, Jesus' um, humble obedience humble obedience, bearing in mind who Jesus was and what he was capable of and the power he had. It says they laid hands on him and seized him. This is God the Son. And the hands of sinful men, his own creation, he allowed to grab hold of him and to seize him. And in the melee, in all the kerfuffle, there's that bit of violence happening there. If you read the other Gospels, you find out it's Peter waving a sword And the servant's called Malchus. Jesus heals the servant. Mark doesn't tend to focus on that, but just there's a lot going on there. And the point Jesus makes is, why have you sent this violent mob to get me? I'm not a robber. I've been in the temple teaching in the courts, and we've seen that in the previous chapters. Jesus was just a teacher, and he was there, right in the midst of everything that was going on, teaching and yet you're treating me like this. Another fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53:12, where it says he will be numbered with the transgressors. They're treating Jesus like some kind of common criminal, some potential insurrectionist. Jesus says, no, I was just a teacher. I was there. If you want to arrest me, you could arrest me so easily. Why have you come with this armed SWAT team to pick me up when actually I was right there amongst you anyway? And we, what we see there is the humility of Christ the submission to the plan of God. We see the sovereignty of God over all things that Jesus is in. Even though he's the one being arrested, he is in total control. He knows knows what's happening. He knows how it's being worked out in accordance to Scripture. He knows what's going on. And then the final devastating, chilling ending is that Jesus faces total abandonment. Total abandonment. Verse 50, a really short verse, but it is horrific to read. And it says, they all left him and fled. Who's it referring to? It's referring to the disciples. Those are the ones who drank the cup with him at the meal. They ate the bread. 
with him at the meal. This is the new covenant, my body, my blood. They're the ones who said, Jesus, Lord, we're never going to leave you. We're going to die for you. That's what we'll do, particularly big mouth Peter at the front. Oh, no, they'll all fall away. I won't. And it says they all left him and fled. So Jesus is totally alone. And Jesus knew this was coming as part of why we had the section before, was he knew what was happening. Part of it was an abandonment, abandonment by his friends, abandonment by his people. They all left him, despite their closeness, despite their words of bravado. Oh, no, we'll never leave you, Lord. They do. And so we have the, the portrayal of Judas, which is then multiplied by the abandonment and the failure of his disciples and then we have, randomly, the Bible's first and only streaker. Um, a, young, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him because he was with them. But he legged it, and he was naked because he left the cloth behind. We don't know who this man is. A lot of speculation. It could be Mark, the writer of the gospel, kind of a little autobiographical note. Bit of a strange one if it is him. But... I read around and had some thoughts and, and a lot of the, the, the kind of conclusion kind of lands is that you've got this random individual who's also fleeing and leaving everything behind and there's an invitation of the reader there to put themselves in the story because what would have happened if we'd have been there? If we were part of that group, if we were part of the followers of Jesus, we might try and kid ourselves and say, oh no, we'd be, oh, we, we wouldn't leave. We'd, that means you stand with the Peter end. Oh, we wouldn't leave, but actually the reality is they all fled. And the reality is if we were in that story, we would have all fled. And doesn't matter what we had, we would have just left it and ran. Because we all fail, we all fall short, which is the very reason why Jesus came to die in the first place for us all. A couple of bits of application to finish with us now. First one. Jesus' betrayal and death is all part of the plan. All part of the plan. If you're looking kind of from an outsider coming in, or imagine if this was dramatized in a, a TV show and this was one of the episodes and you, you just jumped into the middle of the series and you watch this particular episode in the, in the middle of the series, you would have seen everything going wrong. You'd have seen the central character, Jesus, oh, he's the hero of the story, is he? Yet he is... In emotional turmoil, he is completely undone and overwhelmed, and he's in prayer, and there's blood pouring from his brow, and what's going on? And he says he's overwhelmed by death. He's got his friends who are with him. Oh, they're obviously his buddies. They're the side characters. They're obviously his friends. They're there. They continually fail him as well. They keep falling asleep when he's saying, no, pray with me, and they don't. We see the betrayal of one of his other friends. Oh, another of his friends coming, that's great. Wait a minute, he's just led a group of armed men to arrest him. And we see eventually the total abandonment of Jesus. What a horrible thing to watch. If you watch that, as if, well, this is a depressing story. This is horrible. Why would I be watching this? This is not going well. But yet, within the sovereign hand of God, this is all going exactly according to plan. This is all going to according to plan. We see Jesus' humble obedience. We see his complete trust of his Father in heaven. God the Son trusting in the plan of God the Father by the power of God the Spirit. We see the words of the Old Testament being fulfilled. Jesus' summary in verse 49 was actually, 
this is happening. So the scriptures, reference to Old Testament, part of our Bible, are being fulfilled. And he's not specific on there because there are many, many, many Old Testament prophecies being worked out at that point. And so this is all part of the plan. Jesus' own words in the gospel are being fulfilled because he predicted three times what would happen to him, how he would be betrayed and arrested and handed over to sinful men, to the Jewish authorities as well as the Roman authorities, and he would die. All that stuff is being worked out. And Jesus, we see it in just his general surrender to what's happening. He knows this is all part of the plan. He's not kicking and screaming and fighting. He's actually saying, yep, I know this is, he is allowing them to seize him and take him into custody. And so the irony is that when things look so bad, God's plan is being worked out perfectly. When things look awful and overwhelming, the perfect plan of God is being worked out right before him. And Jesus is right where he needs to be to fulfill the will of his Father in heaven. Despite the actions of sinful men, despite the outright betrayal of Judas, despite the weakness and cowardice of his disciples and the the streaker there, which just applies to all of us, despite that, Jesus is right where he needs to be working out the plan of God. And so I just want to kind of just take a pause here and ask yourself, where do you find yourself right now? Where do you find yourself right now? Can you identify with Jesus in the garden? That being overwhelmed by circumstances, by things coming in on you, by being crushed by what's happening in your life, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Is that something that sounds familiar to you? Well, the good news is that Jesus has lived through it. And so we have a Savior who can identify with us whatever we've been through. There's nothing that you can face where Jesus can't say, I know what that's like. I've lived with that. I've faced betrayal. I've faced abandonment. I've faced overwhelming, crushing uh, anxiety of what's happening here right now. He knows what that is like. And because he's lived through it and did so perfectly, that means by his death and resurrection, we have grace to endure it today. Grace is available to you today. Because he walked the path that led to the cross we can know hope and comfort in times of trouble. Because he bled and died and then rose again, ascended into heaven, we too can know that. We too can be men and women full of the Holy Spirit, which we had mentioned earlier, and empowered to endure and persevere in times of difficulty and trouble. Jesus actually said in another gospel, he says, it's better that I go away. Why? so that I can send another one who will be with you forever. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And we see this in the book of Acts, where these, these failure disciples who suddenly realize their error, they see the risen Christ, they're still like, what's going on? They're praying together and the Spirit falls on them and they are transformed. So men and women who take the good news of Jesus across the known world at that time face incredible hardship and pain and suffering again and again as they plant churches and preach the gospel and serve the poor. And yet because the Spirit's with them, they are empowered for service. And so my 
My message to you today is, are you filled with the Spirit? Because he's the one who helps you live and move and act like Jesus. He's the one who helps you to endure in times of suffering, to find strength in the Father in heaven. He's the one who is there to do that. Are you praying daily for the Spirit to be in your life? Are you praying in your life groups? When it comes to our eat and chat and then pray, is this part of the, the, the culture and the, the, what you guys do? That when you get to that prayer, let's pray for one another. It's okay to pray for the list. Oh, this is happening, this is happening, happening. That's fine. But actually pray for one another to persevere through the trials. Through the trials. Because sometimes God brings breakthroughs. Sometimes they seem to go on for, it seems like there's no end. And we pray in those times that God would fill us with his spirit. Do that this week. I'm going to pray for you guys at the end in just a moment. Be men and women filled with the Spirit. Last one. Jesus came for the weak and the cowardly. Jesus came for the weak and the cowardly. If you had to give a job assessment, okay, it's your annual review, guys. Let's have a sit down and see how you did. Get Peter, James, and John in. How's it going? <laughs> how are you doing? Let's look at your performance targets. They would have spectacularly failed this. They were too selfish, too lazy, too weak, too cowardly to pray with Jesus and then to stay with Jesus. They fled. They ran. We see one of their number betray him and the rest all do a runner despite their brash assurances from last time. And in the midst of their abject failure, we see a suffering servant who came to die for them. Jesus came to die for them. And while they were failing, Jesus was in the process of dying and redeeming them. And so we know, for us, we fail. We know we're weak. We know we're cowardly. We know we get things wrong. But we all have a Savior who died for us. We all have someone we can return to. We all have someone we can go to for forgiveness and grace. We will have someone we can turn to in times of difficulty and call on. And so my question here just as we finish is, do you make regular repentance part of your life? Is it a daily practice as we um, are to forget, receive forgiveness of God as we forgive other people as it's prayed in the Lord's Prayer? For me, I always go to one place, which is 1 John 1, 8 and 9, where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Oh, that's your first starter. Right, I have sin. But if we confess our sins, speak it out, he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a daily practice. Have you, have you done it today? Just coming amongst God's people, actually awareness, we're coming into the presence of God. There's things I need to get right. I need to repent of our sins. We need to turn around. We need to recognize that no matter what my failures are, no matter my weaknesses, I have a Savior who I can come to and find cleansing and find forgiveness. Whatever it is you're facing right now, whatever it is you're going through, you have someone who is listening to you. We're told to come boldly before our Father in heaven through the blood of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, and come and make requests of him. So I'm going to pray for you now, guys. Do you want to stand? Maybe the band can come up. We're going to sing in a little bit. But I want to pray. I want to give you a moment. If there's things you need to get right before God, things you need to confess, do that. 
and then I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to help you in whatever situation you're in. And when we get to that, I'd love you to ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you. You do it. I'll do it, but you do it. But also bring whatever it is you're facing at the moment to him. Speak it out to him. So you've got to do a lot of, act, a lot of work in the next couple of minutes. Okay? So maybe you want to close your eyes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross and your resurrection. We thank you that in the, the midst of failure of your followers, you were still willing to walk the road, to drink the cup, to face the cross for us, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you that you died in our place for us. And we thank you that you rose bodily from death, ascended into heaven, a ruling and reigning the Father, and sent the Spirit to us to be with us forever. God, we will come before you now and we confess our sins to you. Now you do that. Lord, we thank you that your forgiveness is available to us when we confess our sins, when we recognize, when we repent, turn away from our living our own, when we thank you that you cleanse us from all our righteousness, Lord God. And now we pray, we ask, God, fill us with your spirit that we may serve you wherever we find ourselves, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our social settings, that we might be empowered for service, we might be empowered to endure what we're facing, to persevere, to keep going, to face unanswered or delayed prayer. Lord God, give us grace to keep walking. You ask God now to fill you by his spirit for what you need and be specific there.